Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Strength and Conditioning and Sports Science Manager at Australian Surfing, Jeremy Shepherd. Hi guys, thanks for checking out episode 28 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Really, really excited today to get Jeremy Shepard on the line. Jeremy is Head of Strength and Conditioning and Sports Science Manager at Surfing Australia. So a really interesting story uh, on Jeremy's side. We discussed the demands of surfing, transferring knowledge from traditional sports to surfing, assessing landings and development of a performance testing protocol. Jeremy's been involved all over the world in various different guises and various different sports, so it's definitely worth checking out. Just before we get going, just like to draw your attention to a workshop that's going on in Gloucester at the back end of May. Now I'll put the I'll put a link on the website so you can check that out. So Dr. Mike Young's coming over to deliver a speed training workshop over over a weekend at the back end of May. So please have a little look on the on the website. And you can click on the on the link and, and get booked onto that because it'll be a great event. And just one last thing before the interview with Jeremy. If you want to keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast, you can subscribe on YouTube and iTunes. Pop over to paceyperformance.co.uk and you can get all the show notes and the all the links that are mentioned in this episode. You can also follow me on Twitter at paceyperform and that'll inform you when new episodes are out and things like that. But here is the interview with Jeremy Shepard. Hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Really excited to get Jeremy Shepard on the phone today. So I'd just like to welcome Jeremy to the podcast. And before we get going, just to ask Jeremy to give us a little bit of a background on himself, uh, his education and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so uh, I, uh, I'm based in Australia. Um, I am the head of strength and conditioning and sports science manager for Surfing Australia. And what brought me over here uh, to Australia from Canada 10 years ago was um, an opportunity to work at the Australian Institute of Sport, which was um, pretty much all it is cracked up to be in terms of a learning opportunity. It was outstanding and I couldn't turn it down at the time. Um, yeah, and so I worked primarily in Olympic sport for 20 years, and uh, and then I moved over to surfing. Uh, it's coming up on four years in surfing. I'm a surfer myself, so a lot of people think that's you know that's what made it the dream job. But to be honest, you know I was going to surf whether I work in athletics or whether I work in volleyball. Um, you know I would have continued surfing. It was more an opportunity to build a high performance team um, and and. I'm a student of leadership. I really enjoy working on my personal skills and in, in management and leadership. So that was kind of kind of an opportunity to break some ground, build a team, and and try and put some high performance things in place with a new sport. Um, so yeah, I've been four years. I live in Cabarita Beach, which is far north, New South Wales. Cool. So I looked at your your, um, your bio, and I think uh, Edith Cowan University's uh, website. So there's quite a lot of education there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your educational background as well? Yeah, sure. So the the academic side of things, I've, I've sort of come about that a little um, a little bit different. Um, to be honest, when I was a 
you know, uh, when I completed high school, for me, the, the sole reason to go to university was to play hockey, to play ice hockey. <laughs> um, you know, being, being a Canadian, that was a pathway that I was going to go down. I didn't get drafted to the National Hockey League, um, which you, you would do at 18 if you had all the talents and all the runs on the board. Um, so another pathway to keep going and potentially, um, you know, say play in a lesser league like Europe or something like that. Uh, is to do university, get your degree, and it's not that I wasn't interested um, in school at all, but it was more that was sort of how I how I viewed university. Um, when my um, ice hockey career finished up during university, um, you know, through injuries and and um, and reality of my skill set, I realized that I um, actually really loved really loved coaching and coaching effectiveness and and the physicality of training. I was one of those guys that actually was quite self-motivated in training compared to my teammates and things like that. So um, I didn't even know what it was called at the time. I remember thinking, I want to be the guy that helps people be physically superior to their opposition. That's what I want to be. And um, I didn't even know what it was called at the time. Turns out it's you know commonly known as a strength conditioning coach or a physical performance coach. But in Canada at the time, the only sort of thing that was similar was a university-based sports scientist. And I had a look at what they did. And I remember even back then at about 20, 21 years old thinking, these guys are actually exercise scientists who love sport. They're not actually sports scientists really. That's not what they do every day. So it was kind of interesting because a lot of those things as a young man, I still see our issues now with universities. You see. A lot of people going, yeah, I'm, I'm doing sports science, I'm doing sports science, and, and what they're actually studying is exercise science, because the population they're looking at is, you know, the average person, not the elite athlete. So that was kind of an interesting beginning for me. Um, I did the National Coaching Institute in Canada, which is, I was the first person to go through not in a traditional sport, you know, my sport, so to speak, was strength and conditioning. And I studied under Ishvan Bali, and... I look back now and think I was really lucky. Whether you, you know, whether you drink an Ishvan's Kool-Aid on LTAD or whether you you're liking someone else's take on it or whatever, that's totally irrelevant. But what what was really important at the time was that Ishvan really is credible in periodization. He is across things in terms of, you know, forget LTAD for a second, but just planning out a year and understanding the vertical integration of all the components we did. And I it's still a competitive advantage for me to this day that way back in the early 90s I was studying this stuff you know like I knew who you know all these traditional people Ishvan seemed to know these guys you know even guys that are now dead Ishvan was like oh yeah you know let's talk about this guy and his theories and his training and let's let's see this and that was really exceptional and um, so I was working as a strength coach and I got hit by a car uh, on my bicycle and in the rehab process I thought to myself I might not be able to do the rest of my career 60 hours a week in the weight room just as a chalk on the hands practitioner I might need another string to my bow um, so I, um, I invested my money and got a graduate degree in Australia so I did a master's degree turns out didn't hate it actually loved it had a great experience um, and then, uh, yeah, later when I was working for AIS, 
I actually found it really, really easy to uh, to do a PhD. I, I did the PhD with uh, the athletes I was working with. I didn't have to recruit a single subject. I just we're going to do a training study on depth jumps. So uh, let's. I just designed the program and asked myself if it was a good idea and agreed with myself. So we just basically did it. So I just sort of um, had a real nice, um, to be honest, a, a really nice experience doing it as a as an older older guy. You know, I didn't. I wasn't a 25-year-old PhD student. I was a, I was in my 30s, and uh, you know, it was kind of, to be honest, it was kind of easy. Cool. <laughs> that, that sounds bad for people who had, for people who struggled, and I, I feel, I feel bad for them. I, I, I supervise a lot of students, and a lot of bad luck happens. But to be honest, um, I, I had a purple patch, a real nice run, and it was. It, it all fell into place, so um, I'm very fortunate. Um, but I would still describe myself as I'm a strength coach who is very curious, and I don't want to wait around for other people to ask questions. So when people see my CV and they think, "Yeah, PhD supervises PhD students," I mean, I'm wearing running shoes right now, and I just finished running a training session, and I, I actually do have chalk on my hands. Um, left over from that training session and that's what I do every day. The reason why I did all that graduate work is because um, I'm ambitious, you know, I just, I'm, I, and I'm not that smart so I need to, I need to study and I need formal study in order for me to get my head around things. So um, yeah, don't be misled about the, all the sports science stuff that I have on my CV, you know, and publications and stuff. That's just, that just comes out of being a curious strength coach. Sounds like you got a great balance. Sounds brilliant. So I just want to talk. Just want to talk a little bit about surfing itself. Um, obviously, there's not that much surfing going on in Canada. Um, so, but but I just mm-hmm. wanted to um, talk about demands of surfing because obviously in the UK we've got got maybe Cornwall or you know the south the southwest a little bit. Um, but we're kind of we're not up on our on our surfing apart from my dad's um, Mark Hakalupo videos that he used to get out. Um, in the early 2000s to see the sun yeah. when it was when it was depressing and and cold in the UK. Sure. Um, but can you tell yeah. us a little bit about about the demands of surfing um, and what you've mm. kind of what you've kind of found been involved in the sport? Well, what's been really interesting as a strength coach and 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 this is something for the for the listeners that maybe have nothing to do with surfing professionally or even personally as well and. Um, is it's been such a learning experience to come in as someone who's worked in sports that have a long history, um, a culture, if you will, of high performance. So if you think about Olympic sports, specifically traditional summer Olympic sports that have been around, there's a lot known about the sport and there isn't a, there's some cultural things that, you know, let's say you think of track and field, there might be some cultural things that a strength coach might want to undo. But culturally, they don't have to. Um, they don't have to start at the bottom and build up a. You know, you never have to talk a, a a long jumper into the importance of you know a good warm up. You know, you come in. I I come into surfing and I'm you know I was dealing with twenty five year olds on the world championship tour and I'm thinking, yeah, mate. You know, it might be a good idea to do a warm up. You know, um, it just it, you know there might be some benefits, don't you reckon? So it was really, um, you know, an interesting cultural shift. But to your question specifically, what I found amazing was what people asserted 
that, you know, were, were the demands of surfing. You know, I have this quote that I sometimes roll out when I'm discussing the demands of surfing. And the quote is as follows. I have it memorized. Um, surfers should not strength train or do explosive activity. It will make them too heavy. Surfers should go for mountain bike rides and run sand dunes to build their aerobic fitness. Uh, and they should do yoga and Pilates. Now, I have, I have no problem with doing mobility work. We do a ton of it. I have no problem if some of that looks like yoga, if some of it looks like Pilates. Um, there's nothing really wrong with running up sand dunes or going for a mountain bike ride. I mean, I'm, I'm married to a former professional mountain biker. <laughs> I don't, don't really have a problem with it. But that quote is from someone who was consulting wildly, uh, widely, wildly and widely <laughs> to, to some serious, serious contenders in the surfing world at the time that I came into the sport. Now, obviously, it would be extremely unprofessional for me to, um, to name that person, but it's just, it's just an example of the lack of high-performance culture and high-performance thinking. And there's no point in getting angry at anyone or being frustrated by it. That was the challenge. I actually think it's awesome because I'm like, hey, let's actually see if that's true. And so it turns out that competitive surfing is viewed as this real aerobic dominant sport with super light people who don't need explosive qualities and things like that. But that's more a reflection, a perception on how they train, which is, you know, three hour surfs. So therefore it must be aerobic, right? Well, that's not how they compete. And they get judged for explosive wave riding. Literally power is in the judging criteria. If you're to break the judging criteria down, it's speed, power, and flow in the critical sections of the waves with progressive maneuvers. By progressive maneuvers, they mean things like literally taking risk, aerials, and explosive activities. So as it turns out, aerobic ability is something we need to chase as much as you need not as much as you can. So we set standards for aerobic ability and anaerobic repeat effort ability. And once they achieve that, whether they're males and females, they achieve that standard, chasing it further delivers us no further performance gain. However, we know that, say, sprint paddling and explosive paddling ability allows the athlete to get into the wave earlier. This provides safety for them at waves like Chopu in Tahiti and Pipeline in Hawaii because they have a faster entry speed, a faster pop-up. So literally, they risk their life less. This is, this is a performance indicator. So I'll give you an example. The athletes that I work with that can sprint paddle 1.9 meters per second or faster often make quarterfinals or better at waves like Pipeline and Chopu in Tahiti. Athletes under 1.8 get staph infections from hitting the reef at Chopu and Pipeline and do not make it past round three. 100%. They literally, they literally cannot get into that wave. And then, I mean, we've published a study, it's coming out soon, looking at a large group of athletes and they were ranked by world tour judges and coaches on the world tour. And these judges and coaches were blinded to their test results 
And the test result that predicted those judges and those coaches ranking of their surfing ability, not their physical qualities, not how they look in board shorts or bikinis, but literally their surfing ability, their ability to do turns and do errors. That rank correlation was uh, related and predicted by their explosive strength qualities, so their jumping ability on a force platform. That's underpinned by their relative strength. So surfing is a gymnastic strength and power sport, and it is supported and underpinned by conditioning. And of course, we do a ton of mobility, and we do a lot of balance work. But we don't walk around on BOSU balls all day. We might spend 5% of our time on it. We might spend 20% of our time on it during rehab. But we do gymnastics for balance. We do um, all sorts of little balance drills. We do domain-specific conditioning. So we manipulate, almost like a small-sided games approach for conditioning. But all of that stuff is irrelevant if the athlete's weak because they're just going to break. Um, so the, I guess the thing that we push that's a little bit different is that we assess and create standards in and around robustness, resiliency, and explosive strength because that's where we're getting our biggest gains. And then after that, we worry about all these more two percenters. The big rocks for us are mobility, stability, and strength. And a lot of surfers are really keen to go mobility, stability, and they forget about the strength. Mm. Now that's really interesting. I mean I've looked to the the website, I don't know if it's um I don't know if it's affiliated with the um Australian surfing, but there's a lot of obviously videos showing you um training with the guys, um doing a lot of gymnastics like you mentioned into into soft rubber um pulls and things like that. Um but you focus yeah. on you focus on landing because obviously when these guys are getting big airs uh, in the water, they've got to obviously land it. Um, yeah. What what kind of um, qualities are you looking for with regards to landing? I know there's some you, you've done some research out there as well, um, assessing landings. Um, what kind of importance do you put on um, do you put on kind of uh, the te- the technique technique of landing? Yeah, we we start really early with that. Um, you know, um, uh, Greg Meyer in the U.S. would call what we're doing with our very young athletes, he would call it, um, you know, neuromuscular conditioning or neuromuscular training. And, and it all sort of, for us, it means it, it's around the technique, the ability to uh, produce force. We're always going to train that. You know, every strength coach is going to train that. But the ability to absorb force you can, you can start straight away and whether it's plyometric progressions or whether it's just altitude landing progressions or working on their alignment and their technique. And it's totally true to, to have a look at this stuff and say, yeah, but in the sport, it's a lot more chaotic. Um, but that doesn't mean that training in a controlled environment to produce landing, say with a nine, 10 year old, to produce a good landing just off a box there is a transfer effect, even though it might be chaotic in the surf environment itself and they don't land on a rubber mat or a rubber floor or a gymnastics mat or even a trampoline. They land on a board on fiberglass on water. So there are variations. But we're seeing a resiliency effect with training that landing. Um, 
And so uh, Brendan Ferrier, who's based out of Scotland, he's doing a PhD with us looking at aerials, aerial takeoffs, aerial landings. And Lena Lundgren um, is from Sweden and she's based here with us. And she's done, uh, she's nearly completed her PhD looking at uh, injuries from landing. And the key thing, and this is, this is what I think is really cool because this is where you bridge the gap between sports science and coaching. And Lena's done a great job with it. She's been able to identify through really robust methods using force platforms, accelerometry, high-speed camera work, um, Xsense suit, which uh, basically is like able to give us a 3D kinematic of the athlete without having to go in a true lab environment, looking at all these different variations. And what it comes down to is if we, you can get an athlete to land well, that will tell you what you need to know. So if it looks good to the coach's eye, and it doesn't sound too loud, then that essentially is pretty much, it's not the gold standard, like landing on a platform and having the video and having the XN suit, but it tells us a lot. So we're disseminating that information saying, hey, coaches of these junior athletes, you know, we want them, we don't, we don't care if they can run up a sand dune 10 times at 10 years old, we'd love to be able to see them drop off a box and not have it be poison to the eyes of a coach. You know, nice alignment, chest within the base of the support, not the chest going way over the toes, not the hips high, absorbing the force and the knees, not being able to compress under control. So we're looking at that sort of good, it's like a squat prep pattern, a compression pattern under control. Uh, in the lab, we want to see them be able to have a nice um, a dampening of the force so they don't, you know, land off a box and have six times body weight as a peak force. That's a really poor landing. We want to see it, you know, kind of under three and a half times body weight off, say, half a meter for an, an adult. And then we're looking at the time that it takes them to stabilize. So we do that, you know, just a forward landing, a twist and land to look at some of the ways that athletes are landing. And then we bridge that gap by using some accelerometers in the gymnastics tramps where we replicate some of the motions and then see if that can also, we put them in the water and waterproof the accelerometers and get a reflection of the, the force that they're putting through their body in those landings as well. Cool. So, so when you're training, when you're training um, this technique of landing, is there any, is there any model that you, um, that you use or categories of exercise that you progress the guys through? Yeah, first and foremost, I would look at what might be a limiting factor for them. So we'll look at like a model of, of the limiting factor. So, and this is based on the research that we did with Lena and, um, and uh, myself and, and her uh, other key supervisor, Professor Newton and uh, Rob Newton and, uh, and Sophia Nymphias. So from this information, we say, well, look, we, really, we need a really good ankle range. So if ankle range is limited, they're not going to be able to absorb the force. So if ankle range is limited, we need to then say, you know, sort of follow that tree of, of, of inquiry and say, okay, we're branching off here saying ankle range is limiting. Well, why is it, you know, is the soleus gastroc complex? So is it soft tissue extensibility? Is it joint mobility? Was there an injury there? So you really need to kind of resolve that. So if it's joint, clear the joint. If it's soft tissue, clear the soft tissue, it might be both, to get them to the point where we can't train technique if there's a limiting physical factor. Another key one 
to control is their body weight. If, if they have excessive fat, really there's something you can do in all those other areas. You, know, you can work on ankle range, you can work on the other factors, but they're, they're going to land with too much fat. That's not a good thing. So you need to clear that issue, get the nutrition under control. Uh, it's not a problem we really deal with too much, but occasionally we do. Strength. If they don't have adequate strength, they're not going to be able to absorb force. This is really logical to every strength coach that's listening. Um, it's, believe it or not, it's not actually a straightforward thing for some surf coaches and a lot of surf athletes. But once they start doing the training, they feel it, they experience it. And then what you end up having is an advocate for strength training. You have all these professional surfers saying, I have an 85% completion rate on my landings and touch wood. I'm not, I haven't been injured in two years. And wow, I, I definitely think it's related to getting, getting stronger. Um, those are really key issues. Some tertiary issues that can manifest would be things like posture. So even just spinal posture. If they can't organize their spine very well, you're not going to have them land in a nice, you know, sort of, let's call it economical position for the body if, if they don't have good posture because they're fighting this poor posture. So those are some little um, issues that are, I would call them tertiary issues, things that you might need to work on to keep progressing. If all of those things are going, well, then obviously we need to look at developing eccentric strength um, in controlled environments. So looking at things like getting them strong on a single leg, getting them strong with both legs. And there's lots of different tools in the toolbox for this. You might be, you might be doing front squats. You might be doing snatch squats. You might be doing back squats. You might be doing lunge patterns. Um, you might be doing split lunge patterns, um, single leg squats, these kind of things. But in addition, there's some stuff you can do. Um, overloaded eccentric squatting, uh, overloaded eccentric lowering. So they're lowering, um, you know, under control with a little bit of extra load and then releasing the weight and exploding upwards as well. Um, and then altitude landing progressions themselves. So looking at dropping from 20 centimeters, double leg, moving up to 40, 50, 60, and then looking at, you know, hop and stick with single leg, hop and drop, stick with a, with a single leg off of a box, look at multi-directionals, then you can start progressing them to even more explosive dynamic stuff. Work with twists, rotations, uh, jump in, you know, 360 rotations, 720 rotations off a trampoline. I mean, I, I work with nine-year-olds a little bit. A lot of that I have to delegate because I travel with the world tour, but I also work with, you know, people going for a world title. So I've sort of just covered an LTAD <laughs> model there going from our youngest athlete, which is a nine-year-old girl who is actually probably at a 10, 11-year-old level physically, um, straight up to 35-year-olds. So, you know, when I say 720s, we, we're not hucking 8-year-olds off trampolines <laughs> or skateboards or anything, but they want to do that, but we're not doing that. Do. So, yeah, hor hor horses for courses in terms of progressions. And as I say to anyone I mentor, we meet our athletes at their level. Mm-hmm. We no. do that emotionally. We do that with with our standards that we set and our expectations. No, that's really interesting. I mean, you, you talk about testing uh, a little bit in there. So with so much um, with so much out there to to look at and kind of decipher, how would you go about developing um, a performance 
testing, you know, a, a bat- t- testing battery? Mm. Yeah, so um, that needed to be done um, and developed with surfing. So we've gone through that. Whereas if I think about other sports, you were sort of inheriting ones that are done in the sport and you modify them, whether it's track and field and you have a discussion with the coach and they want to look at something specific. Um, so you go down that, that path of developing something for that, that hurdler or that jumper or, or whatever it is. And then with volleyball um, saying, okay, well, traditionally they've done this to assess energy systems, but we'd like to look at this. And I'd like to add this other jump test to help compare the other ones with surfing it was all pretty new. There was some coaches who were working in that space, you know, some coaches who had a flat water time trial for a paddle, or maybe they were doing vertical jump on a vertex. So for us at, at present, we, we have an evaluation process. Um, and I would always say to anyone who's willing to listen to me, every day is an evaluation because every day we're getting feedback every day. We're looking at quantificational load, response to load, those kind of things. But in terms of for, in terms of formal testing, that will say this is something we would do quarterly. Um, we sort of have three streams to it, uh, and that would be more your semi-orthopedic, semi-medical. Now, a lot of people would say, well, I only do that as a coach if there's a red flag in my functional movement screen or there's a red flag in my, uh, you know, whatever it is. Working with an individual sport, I've found that it's not about just looking for red flags and then referring to the physio. So literally, the orthopedic people are there in the weight room with me on a semi-regular basis. Not a lot, but on a semi-regular basis. So just, just, um, just watching and observing? Observing and then, you know, on a fairly regular basis, we it's almost like the expression I use is let's not, let's not trust like let's not trust our observations because we might be suffering from investigator bias. So we might be saying, look, we don't have to really go through all these orthopedic tests unless there's something wrong with that overhead pattern. Then we'll go through the shoulder orthopedic exam. We will do that orthopedic exam two or three times a year. And we might not do that with another sport, but with an individual sport like that, I spend a lot of time with very few people. So let's clear that shoulder. Let's have a look at it. Let's have a look at that hip. Let's know everything that we can about our hip because we don't want to let our ego as a coach lead us down the investigator bias. So yeah, a physio, an orthopedic person is looking at hip range. They're looking at shoulder range. We're doing that no less than three or four times a year. Um, but it doesn't take much time because I literally, I blend that into the work that we're doing. Um, I generally have um, myself doing, I have, a, I have a table at every training session and I'll do myofascial release if I need to right there on the spot. But I want to save my thumbs. I'm only 40. I want to coach hands-on for at least another 20 or 30 years. So I need to save my thumbs. So I have a soft tissue therapist who's massage background, ART certified, all that kind of stuff. And whenever I can, I have a physiotherapist there at every session. And so it's kind of ongoing, all that orthopedic stuff. You know, it's an ongoing process. So that's sort of one stream. The other stream is um, we, we have what we call an athletic competency test. So these are standards. There's four levels. 
And it's your primary movement patterns. You know, there's a lunge pattern, there's a squat pattern, single, there's a squat pattern, double, there's a push pattern, there's a pull pattern, you know, and there's a, there's a force resistant or torso resistant pattern as well. And the expectations change from level one through level four. And the idea is you meet the athlete at the level that they're at. So you might take an athlete through and test them at level two, and then they, you know, they get perfect score eventually on level two, and then they go to level three. So for example, the pull pattern might change to a loaded pull up. It might start off as a horizontal pull for a child or, or a, a childlike athlete, uh, an untrained athlete who might, who might be 25 years old. They might be doing level one pull pattern, which is a horizontal row. Um, I found this useful. Uh, you could pick it apart and say, well, it's not a movement screen, but it's also not performance testing. And that's true. That's totally true. But it works for us in this particular environment because I need to work. I work in this one place and I work with athletes, some of which were across the country. I need a communication tool with a lot of my colleagues who are working with athletes who are, say, 15, 16 years old who are based five hours away from me. If I get an email from a colleague in Western Australia and she says, Jacob Wilcox has tested perfect at level three on your athletic competency test, I know that that means that Jacob Wilcox's snatch squat pattern with 25% of his body weight for 10 reps looks great. And I know that it's highly unlikely he's got a hip mobility issue that I wasn't aware of or an ankle mobility issue or a shoulder stability issue because this kid is snatch squatting 25% of his body weight. It's not great. It doesn't reflect his strength. I know that. But it's a movement and he's doing it well. And, you know, at level four, he'll do half his body weight. And it's great if he can do more. I've got lots of surfers who do more. Um, I've got surfers who, you know, can do more than 1.3 times body weight for a one RM chin. And so when they get to level four and they have to do 10 reps with 10 kilos, they smash it out and it's easy and they get a perfect score, three out of three. I'm not trying for it to be a performance test and I'm not trying for it to be a functional movement screen. I'm just literally saying, Hey, let's hold ourselves accountable for good movement. And good movement under stress. And that stress might be a bit of strength endurance. The stress might be a little little bit of, wow, you've got to hold it overhead now at level three. That's that's a mobility stability thing. Or it might just be that they got to do it under some load. So there's that whole stream as well. Um, and then there's our more performance tests. Anthropometry. Uh, so we do a DEXA, we do skin folds as well, more frequently DEXA, we do about once a year. Stature and mass, of course, um, this helps us talk to the shapers about their board and their, their the DEXA helps us with where their weight is distributed and things like that. We look at a sprint paddle test, a repeat sprint paddle test and an endurance time trial over 400 meters. We have, um, we look at a squat jump without a counter movement on a force platform. We look at, this is unloaded. We look at an unloaded jump squat as well with a counter movement. We have an isometric mid thigh pull, which some people love it. Some people hate it. The great thing about it is we can teach a nine year old how to do it. And we can teach a 19 year old how to do it. It's irrelevant whether they're snatching or cleaning or squatting or whatever. So it's, for us in this environment, it's superior to try to do 1RMs, which we might be able to do on 75% of the people we interact 
connect with, but then miss out on the other 25%. We can do it with everyone. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, not too risky and, and all that kind of stuff, even if they have a low training age, just because of the setup. We look at a bilateral squat as well. So we have them do a double leg squat with a light load. It's just 25% of their body weight, but they're standing on two force platforms and we look at whether they, you know, prefer left leg or right leg, whether they're biased one side or the other. We're probably only a year down the path to doing that one, but we really, really like that one as well. Uh, and then we have our drop and stick series where they drop off the 50 centimeter box forward, sideways, that kind of stuff, as we discussed in the landing. And that gives us time to stabilization in milliseconds as well as the relative peak force in the landing. So that's, that's a snapshot of it. Um, I know that sounds like a ton, but just bear in mind for the, for the listeners who might work with 50 football players or something like that, I have, um, I have eight PhD students, five of them work full-time here for me at the training center, so they're all experienced. Three of them are strength conditioning coaches. So of the 100 athletes that we will interact with, they're divided amongst a leadership role with these various people. So we have no shortage of people to help with testing. And all of that testing for an individual athlete can be completed on a regular basis. The orthopedic stuff is happening organically throughout the year within the training sessions. Athletic competency testing takes 45 minutes and that whole battery performance testing takes an hour and 15. I don't work with more than two athletes at a time. So we spend a lot of time with a few athletes. So for our environment, it sounds like a lot, but it's for our environment, it, it, it's actually quite doable. We've never had an athlete complain about testing, too much testing, um, which I have witnessed in other programs in the past in some of the Olympic sports. They're like, oh, let's just get on with training. Why are we testing all the time? These guys, these guys ask for it. They beg for it. They want to look at it. They're like, oh man, I want to get three PBs. I want to, you know, I want to get my drop and stick down. You know, they actually talk about it in a favorable light because we spend so much time together. They like to see where they're headed with it. Mm-hmm. So, no, that's brilliant. That's absolutely it. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, you mentioned that obviously the amount of athletes that you work with. Um, I know you travel with um, with the world tour, but obviously you can't be with. Um, every athlete all the time. So how are you keeping right. these? How are you keeping these guys' programs active while they're going to various different parts of the world? And how do they feed back to you to make sure that you know just to keep a tabs on them to make sure they're doing the right things? Oh, it's, that has been a real um, humbling um, and exciting challenge. I say humbling because you. you you when when you work in a new sport or you're new at something or you try something new oftentimes you go into it with confidence like this is going to work this this uh this iphone app you know like because i'm oh, i'm so clever i've got this iphone app and then you get really humbled because you think the age of the athletes i'm working with this iphone app they're gonna love it they're gonna love it <laughs> no <laughs> no turns turns out you know they don't mind emailing you and they don't mind skyping you and they don't mind texting you and um you know not quite old school but but definitely not new school um and they, they end up preferring it um so yeah I've, I've i've tried a lot of different things and going back to you know the expression we we meet the athletes at their level 
And that's been really interesting in an Olympic sport, in an institute. Like I worked for Australian Institute of Sport and now I work in a sport that is funded by the Australian Institute of Sport. But we're not, we're not an AIS sport, like a team sport like volleyball, where you just say, guys, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And we're Team Australia. So we're in or you're out. And I've thought about it and I agree with myself, this is a dictatorship. So you want to wear the green and gold, this is how we're going to do it. I mean, you might, you might do it a little nicer than that, but you know, you're, you can sort of set these super, super rigid standards. And what, what I found with surfing to be really effective is you end up asking more, a lot more questions. You end up telling people a lot less. And what I've found is I've been overwhelmed uh, and, and quite pleased with the level of athletes that want to engage and give feedback at the highest level. So you were spot on. I mean, I'm going to a world tour event um, this week. It's, it's a world qualifying tour event. And then after that, we'll have a world championship tour event and it's 15 minutes from the training center. So that's obviously not an issue. Um, and then, you know, we have a, a very short training break and then we go to Bell's Beach and then we go to Margaret River and I'll be there. And on off days, we do various things, rehab, prehab training. Um, if they get knocked out, we, you know, give them 24 hours and then, you know, expect them to see them in the weight room the next day or gymnastics hall or whatever. And I just use a network, but I won't go to Brazil this year and that's two weeks and I won't go to Fiji and that's two weeks and that's a unique challenge. They're on an Island. It's not like there's a weight room. You know, so touring with, say, a rugby team is a lot different from touring with surfing. So what I've found is that for some athletes, engaging with them at their level, at the, the expression I use, at their level, might simply be, text me and let me know how you're feeling every Sunday. And for some athletes, they will communicate with me every single day that they're away. They might Skype me. They might text me. They might email me. They might even do all three. They might text me with everything from sleep quality to nutrition quality, mental outlook, physical well-being. They might fill out forms to do this. But it's all bespoke to that individual athlete because if you take the one athlete who's super happy to text you and report on their nutrition, their sleep, their mental outlook, and their physical well-being – and then you try and put them into that box of, say, oh, like this other girl or like this other guy who fills out forums or this other one who likes to use the iPhone app or this other athlete who actually does all this in a spreadsheet I developed, <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to basically not do it well. So it's, I've found that it's better to do what you can and do it really well. And for some athlete, that's really simple. It's, you know hey, I'm so stoked that you have texted me on Sunday. It's the reminders in your phone to text me on Sunday. And you get these texts and it's like, okay, I brought my TRX and I brought my foam roller and I've been doing my mobility every day. And for some athletes, they have a laminated, so it's waterproof. They have a laminated (laughs) piece of paper. And on one side is your fast five mobility and the other side is your fast five rotator cuff resiliency and your fast five hip mobility stability exercises they text me on sunday and i say yeah great work but you know how you um 
you know, how you got knocked out on Friday and you don't compete now in the next country until the following Friday, you know, let's get cracking. Let's get a little strength maintenance or strength on the road strength workout in. Here's the, here's the video. And I've just, you know, sent a file share and they've got a 10 minute video saying, let's do four rounds of this. And it might be some, uh, they might, you know, have an occlusion cuff single leg squat, you know, because they can travel with an occlusion cuff and they can do a single leg squat without any weight and still get something out of it. And they're doing chin-ups on a bus shelter or they're using their TRX straps or their tie-down straps for the roof of their car to do some rows or they might traps powerlifting bands so you just have to individualize it and um it's not as hard as it sounds because i'm very concerned with 12 world championship tour athletes i spend all my coaching time with those 12 and then i oversee the other 100 or so athletes and and my my staff are individualizing for them so we're, we're able to get away with it no, that sounds good. So if there's any any guys um, in board shorts and flip-flops in Brazil, uh, Hawaii, and all these different places doing pull-ups on on um, bush shelters, it's come looking, they should come looking yeah. for you. <laughs> could so, be. Could, well, if their technique's good, I'd like to yeah. think they might have something to do with it. <laughs> um, yeah, if they're, if, they're, if they're kipping or doing something gnarly on their rotator cuff, maybe just uh, intervene there and tell them to calm down. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's, that's the thing about, you know, the guys we, we mentioned before, before we, we, we hit record, we chatted about those tough cases where they do both the World Championship Tour and the World Qualifying Series. To put that in perspective, they're in competitive phase 11 months out of the year. So they have to do the competitions in February and they have to compete. There's a competition on for them all the time. They're the hardest case because the World Championship Tour guys, if we train hard in January and February, lift some heavy things, do a lot of gymnastics, build up a tolerance to some volume, we can hit back on that volume can deadlift or squat or clean or snatch or do loaded chins in those two to three week blocks between their events. But if you're doing both of those tours, you literally are seeing these guys for one to one to three days and then they're off on the plane again. So training on the road is a must. And for some of them that don't engage at that higher level, so we're meeting them at a super basic minimum level. Like for them, doing things well, they're training two days a week, you know, in the off season. That's hardly a bloody off season. And to be honest, I'll admit to you and every strength coach who's listening, that's not good enough. It's not good enough. But the thing is, for that athlete, that's the level that's going to work for them. If we hold them to a higher expectation that they're not willing to hold themselves to, we'll get a worse performance because they'll do everything poorly and it'll all unravel. Interestingly enough, the athletes who I'm up to my neck with, the ones that train hard and are diligent, they rest hard, they take it seriously, they worry about their sleep, they're concerned with their diet, they like structure, those athletes, they're the ones that are realistically going for top five, top ten in world title finishes. The athletes who 
make sacrifices on high performance. They look to sacrifice on those great principles. We're meeting them at their level and their level just ain't good enough. If they can't see that, oh, well, I can't want it for them. So, you know, those guys that go away on the road and they're diligent with their routines and rituals, they're the ones that are making quarterfinals and semis and finals and the ones that are, I'll do a few chin-ups if I feel like it and then I'll make sure I go to this magazine party or this music festival or whatever. Well, they're the ones fighting for their careers every year. No, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I've kept you for um, for 45 minutes now, so I'll just do uh, a little wrap-up. But where can where can people keep in touch with you and keep in touch with your work um, on the internet, tw- Twitter, email? Where, what are the various avenues that people can see what you're doing? I, I don't do a website um, myself or any blogging and stuff like that. I think there's a lot of really good information out there. Um, I guess... I, sometimes I write book chapters um, for, you know, various publications. Um, you know, if the publication is really cool and the editor wants me to do some stuff, that's pretty fun. I guess through Surfing Australia, there's some stuff on mysurf.tv, um, which is a, it's a surfing-based media website that is owned by Surfing Australia, but I do some things on there. And um, Duncan French convinced me to... Instagram and Twitter a couple of years ago, Duncan French from the UK, and he's a good friend of mine, and he said it's a great way to actually get fast-tracked towards articles that you want or blogs that you want to read, and I was skeptical. I thought, I'm too old for Twitter, <laughs> and he said, no, you'll be, you'll be sweet, and, and he was totally right. So, um, yeah, I do, I do Twitter stuff here and there on at um, shepherdcoach is my Twitter and my Instagram, uh, and sometimes it's just... Uh, little articles I've found or coaching things and um, I don't spend too much time on it, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm on there when I am, um, uh, you know, when I'm usually when I'm looking for something. <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, I've got a, um, a bunch of questions that I'm going to ask you after if you don't mind, but um, so that, yeah, sure. thank you for your time. Um, and I really appreciate you, you giving me time to have a little chat before you fly out on uh, just another airplane. Um, so I'll wrap up there yeah. and just, just say, just say thank you very much. Um, and, uh, no, thank you. Um, it's really, um, it's really quite flattering for, um, people like yourself and and anyone who's downloaded this podcast. I feel very humbled to be in the company, um, of, of the people, you know, that you've, you've had in the podcast. It's really impressive to be considered even close to their pedigree. Um, I just feel really blessed to, how to do what I do for a living and to actually have someone like yourself who's, you know, able to communicate with a lot of people in these kind of podcasts. I'm just amazed that someone out there would be willing to download this and listen to me. So, um, thanks. It's really flattering and I don't think it's deserved, but, um, I'll, I'll take it. It's made my day. <laughs> Good. I appreciate that. I think exactly the same every single time I put one out. So I'm amazed that people, mm. uh, people download it and listen to some guy in, in Yorkshire, but they listen, do it do it for me to listen to it for you. But anyway, um, yeah. But thank you very much for your time, um, and I will speak to you shortly. No worries. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for checking out episode 28 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Jeremy. If you want to check out the links, pop over to paceyperformance.co.uk and you can see them all there. 
Keep in touch with everything that's going on the podcast by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube. You can also, if you're kind enough, leave me a, a rating on iTunes, which will help the podcast in the iTunes ratings as well. You can follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform. And don't forget to check out the Mike Young workshop at the back end of May. And again, there's a link on the website. And I will check you in the next episode.